News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We know what's happening in just about every industry and workplace. As Omicron is surging throughout our province, they're also finding it's a huge problem for paramedics, a staffing shortage there too. Joining us to talk more about this once again is Troy Clifford, Provincial President of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC and an active paramedic. Good morning, Troy. Good morning, Jimmy. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you feeling? More importantly, how many people are out sick where you work? Oh, we're seeing some incredible pressure. You know, it's consistent with what you're hearing uh, from other professions and industries. And, and uh, it's definitely putting uh, incredible pressure on an already challenged system. So when you say, like, uh, uh, compare it to average, Troy, like, you know, during flu season, I'm sure it can be tough for a lot of paramedics too. But what are you seeing that is different? Yeah, I think it's just, uh, you know, uh, the, the most important uh, part is that we're seeing the same sort of um, uh, pressures that uh, we've we've already talked about this a lot about how the system's already very challenged with out of service levels that uh, going back a, a long time seem forever actually, but uh, you know now that you're adding this on and coming off the holiday season where we see incredible more calls with um, you know spiked with calls uh, around mental health and addictions that tend to we ha- tend to have a busy season uh, always during the holidays with those type of calls and uh, so we expect that but then yeah, you you know, put this new challenge of omicron on top and it's it's really like i, I think i heard last night dr henry and dennis Dick talking about it's a game changer and it really has uh affected us in incredible numbers that uh, we're seeing uh, um, like others uh, we're hearing with the Oh, the ferries and that. So, yeah, it's it's uh, a challenging, uh, already challenged system and really hitting home for us, I think. And what happens when you have so many paramedics calling in sick? I was reading about, you know, the fact that you have to essentially park ambulances. Is that what happens? Yeah, you know, if you can't get enough staff, and that's what's happened. You know, we've seen 30% on a consistent pattern um, around the lower mainland, uh, you know, from Hope up to Whistler, that's what we consider our lower mainland region. Um, going back before the heat dome, we ha- we've had long stretches of 20, 30, 40% of our ambulances parked just because we don't have enough staff recruited, um, not because of the illnesses for those. So that's our baseline now, it seems to be, which is tragic. But uh, now you add an- another uh, portion of a member. I don't know the exact numbers, but I know that... Uh, consistent with what we're seeing in other industries and that so you know then now uh, you, you you add another dynamic on uh, an already stretched thin maxed out system that's uh, already running short staffed uh, it's it's really putting a lot of pressure on the paramedics and dispatchers and affecting our ability to respond obviously yeah so what is happening then with the response times do you think right now they are getting longer what have you heard Oh, absolutely. I've talked to a lot of paramedics and dispatchers and, you know, we're seeing delays in, in 911 still, um, ability to answer emergency medical calls uh, and assess them and triage them. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's a, with not enough ambulances to respond or paramedics, uh, it's delaying calls, uh, not so much the critical calls, but in uh, the more serious calls, but uh, definitely the uh, lower acuity calls. So, we're looking at ways of uh, working with BCHS to mitigate those calls. But uh, at the end of the day, when you have more calls than paramedics, uh, it's going to delay calls. 
So what was it like right up until this wave kind of hit then, Troy? Because a lot of efforts I know had been made about hiring more paramedics and getting the system back into shape. Like, were we making progress until this happened? I feel we were. I mean, it really hasn't wasn't uh, translating to the impacts uh, to really on the street. But a lot of, uh, you know, it takes time to put all those things in place. Um, and, you know, and, and that has been happening. I feel we've been making some progress, but it really hasn't translated the way we'd hoped, uh, you know, coming out of the summer and the announcements with the ministry. Even in December, when there was more, uh, you know, additional announcements around things, it hasn't translated to uh, really impacting uh, the, the the paramedics on the street the way that I'd hoped uh, in a timely fashion. And, you know, we still haven't seen the mental health and psychological support that was committed to um you know i know it's in the works but uh, it really hasn't translated to the wellness of of the paramedics and and ultimately to our uh, ability to enhance uh, additional ambulances and recruit into the profession so um you know there's still a lot of good work being done and uh, you know i'm all hands on deck if you wish but uh we're really not seeing the translation in a timely fashion to to really impact uh our ability to respond and provide a timely ambulance service. Um, I'm optimistic we're going to get there, but uh, it's really hard right now. I can imagine. You say all hands on deck. Hasn't it been all hands on deck, it must feel like, for the last couple of years already? Yeah, it's exhausting. And I think that's really what one of the toughest things on the paramedics and dispatchers is, you know, the fatigue and the war out. And, you know, but it's not just us. Everybody's tired, right? We're all Oh, not so another, true. not another natural disaster, cheapers, creepers, and not another, uh, you know, you know, another Omicron strain. And it's like, yeah. come on, give us a break here. So I think it really, it, it reflects on us too. But, uh, you know, they've been, you know, our paramedics and dispatchers have been stepping up and, and really picking up overtime, doing everything they can. They just need a break. And, uh, you know, I think they really need acknowledgement from the, uh, government to really move things uh, farther ahead, I think, quicker um, to get more more staff and right. to really meaningful changes, I think, really is what we're looking for. So then, Troy, before we let you go, then just to recap here, so what you're seeing right now because of the Omicron variant is how much, how many more paramedics do you think are off sick? How much is this impacting the system? Well, it's, it, it, I, I don't have the exact numbers from BCHS, so it's hard to put a number on it, but everything I'm hearing from the paramedics and dispatchers and the organization is that it's consistent with other uh, healthcare disciplines and public safety. So, you know, it's definitely uh, adding another at least 10%, 20%. Um, I, I don't know if we're at the spikes that uh, other, you know, that Dr. Henry talked about with, you know, 25%, but we're definitely seeing at least a 10% based on my sort of uh, conversations with paramedics and uh, anecdotally the numbers. But I'm I'm being pretty conservative with that number, I think, because uh, it's not really a great reported uh, process for us to find out exactly. But uh, I know that uh, based on our numbers that we're starting to see, um, we, we were running pretty much consistently at 30 to 40 ambulances out of service in the lower mainland at any given night. Um, and last Friday night, uh, we had 40 out of am- 40 out of uh, 120 approximately out of service. And then at peak times, we're up around 50, um, you know, and even at more around the province, we're seeing, um, you know, 50% of our ambulances in some communities not even staffed. So um, uh, well, how, how to correlate that or translate that to exactly Omicron is hard, but we've mm-hmm. seen a spike of another 10, 15% for sure. So... Um, whether that's an additional call volumes and um, Omicron, I think it's a combination of both, but we're definitely seeing a spike. You definitely are. Troy, thanks so much for your time this morning.
No problem. Thank you. Have a good day. Best of luck. Stay healthy. That's Troy Clifford, Provincial President of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC. We know Omicron is is hitting workplaces all over the place. Paramedics are no different. We're seeing even more ambulances being parked, essentially, because of so many people calling in sick. That's happening in industries everywhere. We heard about BC ferries cancelling some routes even this morning. Check your sailing if you were heading out on BC ferries. It may have been cancelled, and that is because of staff shortages. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, 13 mayors from around BC are asking for help from the provincial government. What are they asking for? Urgent implementation of complex care housing solutions. All right, but what does that mean? Well, it's one of the topics that we're covering this morning with Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, who joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Hi, Sydney. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So what does this mean? What kind of complex care housing solutions? Yeah, um, so you mentioned the 13 mayors across uh, BC. We formed uh, BC Urban Mayors Caucus. Uh, we represent about 55% of the province's rep- uh, population. And uh, we've been meeting for two years, and the top topic that comes up in each of our cities is uh, the increasing intensity of uh, suffering on our streets and in our parks, whether it's encampments or in sidewalks. Uh, we're seeing uh, more people living rough and also uh, the behavior that goes along with that, which is, uh, you know, I think really disturbing and noticed by media and the public. So we put our heads together and uh, had many meetings with um, uh, David Eby, the housing minister, and Sheila Malcolmson, really commend them for their, uh, you know, willingness to uh, talk through this with us. And what we've uh, really arrived at unanimously is uh, the need to, uh, what uh, some of my health colleagues would say, extending the hospital into the community. And that is providing housing uh, for folks that are living rough uh, and then uh, making sure that we hear lots about wraparound services. Well, this is uh, more than that. That is embedding psychiatric and psychological care teams uh, into uh, these uh, housing units to provide 24-7 care uh, to folks that are really uh, destabilized. And um, we've been piling this in Vancouver um, with Vancouver Coastal Health uh, I think in about 30 beds so far, and the results have been remarkable. Um, we've had way fewer visits to emergency rooms. Uh, we've had way fewer police calls. We've had uh, less reliance on uh, alcohol and drugs and a real stabilization. So, right. um, How so big is that pilot project, though, that you're talking about? Because I think here we just heard from Vancouver Police yesterday talking about all these kind of situations that you're just describing happening over the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've started with 30 uh, in some of our, you know, we've, uh, my term is mayor, we've secured over a billion dollars for housing units, new homes for folks. Uh, But in some of these places, you know, we're having people move in that have serious problems like brain injury and and high levels of addiction. So we've had uh, now about 30 of these I would say, you know, beds that have uh, that have this kind of care attached, and uh, but we'll need many more, uh, not just in Vancouver, but right across the province, and that is a real shift in how we're uh, delivering these services right across uh, BC. What kind of an impact do you think that could have then? So is it no longer just call the police and expect them to do the mental health work? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's always uh, frontline responders. And, of course, uh, we have the boards of trade, commerce, uh, you know, um, businesses, police, healthcare teams are really all behind this. So this is, uh, you know, we've all kind of arrived at a solution. And, uh, you know, what we'd like to have is the police less involved, and I think uh, VPD and others would, would say the same, and to have healthcare teams do outreach uh, to help people arrive at uh, – at a much better place in safe, secure, and supported housing. Okay, so what is the next step then? You're calling for this. You said you've had lots of meetings. How did we make this happen? Well, I think we needed to to sift through uh, possible solutions first, options, and I think we've done that. So we have the answer now. Uh, We have great data that's coming in from these pilots in Vancouver Coastal Health. Uh, But what we need is not all health authorities across the province are providing funding uh, to test this in local communities. So we... We need, uh, you know, the money flows from the provincial government into the uh, local area health authorities, and we need some of the health authorities to begin uh, doing what Vancouver Coastal Health is doing. Uh, and then we need more here in the Vancouver Coastal Health area. So, you know, having a couple hundred of these uh, beds would be very, very helpful. Uh, and I think we can get there. Okay, so there's more to come on that story. A couple of the things I wanted to ask you about while we have you here. One is, let's talk about the snow removal situation over the past week. I tell you, I was inundated with complaints with people about what happens in their neighborhood when it snows. What is the city's process for this of people who don't clear their sidewalks? Yeah, I mean, so as you know, the weather has uh, not been cooperating over uh, over the uh, you know over the holidays and and more recently. Uh, and so our engineering team will assess as best as they can uh, that's to engage our, our own street cleaning facilities. But, um, you know, businesses and residents are responsible for clearing sidewalks in front of their house, but we know that's not always possible. So uh, there's a fine line between, say, enforcing bylaws with tickets and, um, you know, trying to uh, give people the time they need to, to make those changes. And, you know, I'm looking at the sidewalks outside of my window right now, and they're all clear. So you you do really have to balance, uh, depending on the weather, pat- weather patterns, uh, you know, whether the rain is going to take the snow away quickly. But I know it is frustrating for people. I have many friends that live with disabilities, and it's super tough for them if yeah. sidewalks are cleared. Yeah. I know. So, like, is there a complaint process? And how, how do you deal with that when it's quite clear that even yesterday there are still sidewalks that haven't been cleared, and it's a danger for people who are walking? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as always, uh, 311 is the place to go for that, is to, uh, you know, we have actually a live, uh, a live board where we, um, we, we track 311 calls and what are emerging priorities. So, if we uh, see that, uh, that uh, there's a large number of calls coming in about uncleared sidewalks, then our teams would switch their priorities in order to make sure that that's uh, moving ahead. So, we, are, we do track all this in real time and then try to... Um, you know, uh, use our resources as best as possible. Uh, like other uh, public service agencies, though, we have been hit with uh, Omicron, and we do have uh, some staff shortages, so that has uh, has uh, created mm. some difficulties over the last, uh, uh, you know, week or so. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that then, because we, we've been talking about that this morning as well. How have, like, people calling in sick impacted City Hall? It, it, there's a couple of things that are happening. We have our uh, our vaccine mandate that's coming as well, uh, so we are uh, 
working through that, just like all other organizations that have a vaccine mandate, which has uh, had a, a very, very minimum, but a little bit of impact on, on staffing, and uh, as well as now uh, sickness. So, you know, we, we the public health officer, has uh, Bonnie Henry, has told us to put back in place our um, our public health uh, provisions for uh, COVID. And so that means we have many people that are not uh, coming into work and that presents all the challenges that you could imagine it does, but really have to shout out to staff who have done just, uh, you know, the, the level of work uh, folks on Christmas Eve and Christmas day working overtime to, you know, away from their families to clear sidewalks and, and, uh, and, and the streets uh, try to keep us all safe. They've, you know, everybody's just running with their tongues hanging out at this point. Uh, so we're just really grateful to them for their work. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is this new bylaw, the bylaw that took effect January 1st about banning the use of plastic bags and disposable cups. There's been a lot of stories about this, about it impacting people that was not in the way that was intended. Have you been reading about this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're monitoring this and, you know, uh, of course, I regularly check in with uh, with the uh, city manager and their teams who, you know, we go, we go through all items. Uh, we have reviewed this one yesterday. Uh, you know, just to remind folks that we have over 200 or about 200 million plastic bags and uh, cups go into our landfill every year. So, uh, you know, once we became aware of how much is going into our landfill in Delta, which is filling up, actually, which is a bit worrying because we, uh, you know, we, we don't have any alternatives at this point. Uh, the public said, you got to do something about this. I think our survey showed 90% of people wanted action. So uh, we we uh, did a huge round of consultation, I think, uh you know, uh, nonprofits and businesses. Uh, and so we came up with the, the policy that we have. It's in place now. And like any new policy that's uh, designed to have a major shift, uh, there have been some bumps landing. And so uh, on the uh, what you mentioned in terms of low-income people being charged for their cups, uh, now we're working with nonprofits and businesses to uh, make sure that uh, that it, this uh, is more equitably applied. Right, but if businesses get to keep this money, where is the incentive for them to find an alternative for people instead of just charging us and keeping the money? Yeah, well, the incentive comes from the public. And so, um, you know, once you find it's a, it's a quarter more to to get your Tim Hortons cup, then you'll bring your reusable cup, and eventually these fees will just go away, right? Uh, you know, once you start bringing your reusable cup, you don't get charged, they don't have to supply them, and so that's... Um, you know, what about what about the places that don't allow you to bring a, this, a, a, your own cup? That's I think part of been the issue as well. Yeah, they're going to have to work this out. And uh, like any policy, we will uh, monitor this as we go ahead. The one thing we know though is that the federal government has now said that they're going to do this across Canada. Uh, some other municipalities like Surrey also do this, so we're learning as we go. But the main thing is uh, we thought this was the best tool to uh in order to reduce that that uh, those 200 million uh pieces of plastic and paper that are going into the landfill unnecessarily and that is um you know we'll monitor as we go ahead and we thank people for uh you know their patience as we're as we're implementing this but i think in the end it'll have the desired effect and which will be less pollution and i think that's a good thing all right well thank you for your time on all of that this morning no problem at all okay thank you that's kennedy stewart the mayor of vancouver talking about a number of different issues there the big one that you're going to hear about in the news has to do with these 13 mayors from all over bc asking for help from the provincial government they want 
urgent implementation of complex care housing solutions as a way of dealing with the rising crime issues, the mental health uh, problems that they see on our streets, the homelessness issue, all of that combined into this, thinking that it will have an impact. This is Mornings with Simi. Talk about what's going on in the United States. They have reached a peak of hospitalizations due to COVID-19. They've got Omicron cases everywhere. I mean, we have a problem up here in Canada too. Their Centers for Disease Control in the U.S., though, is advising Americans to not travel to Canada because of Omicron. Let's talk more about all of this now. Reggie Cicchini joins us, our Global News Washington correspondent. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. All right. So not a good day when it comes to hospitalizations in the U.S. How bad is it? Uh, look, it's bad enough uh, in the United States that uh, the country has broken uh, a hospitalization record uh, with more than 132,000 people in hospital. Uh, that is on top of a daily record for U.S. cases at more than 1.3 million. That likely includes some numbers that came in over the weekend, but it is still a record-breaking number. And it's worth pointing out that in the United States, over an eight-day period through yesterday, there were more than 5.5 million new cases confirmed. So this is is an ongoing surge in all cases. And so how is that impacting like hospitals and staffing? Well, look, it, it, hospital staff have been impacted for the last several months. It's just getting worse now to the point that so many doctors and nurses are, are calling out sick because they've been infected that it's taking its toll and it's uh, it's it's kind of inhibiting uh, the number of people that can come into an ER. It's it's uh, stopping the number of people who may be able to be uh, admitted into hospital. And we've actually hit a point that in Los Angeles County, they are telling uh, positive testing doctors and nurses to come in and work if they are not exhibiting any symptoms solely because they are in such a dire situation that they need the medical staff. That's crazy. Okay. So what about testing? I understand there's a program involving private insurers that the Biden White House is working on. Well, I mean, look, this is problematic right now because, yes, uh, starting this weekend, insurers are supposed to start covering the cost of rapid at-home tests so that people don't have to pay out of pocket. There's no real understanding as to how that's going to work for people who don't have insurance, how that's going to be covered. But the secondary problem here is that there are just no rapid at-home tests to be purchased. You can't find them online. You can't find them uh, in a lot of the community sites that were handing them out. The Biden administration before Christmas promised millions upon millions of these to be put back into the market by using the Defense Production Act. Here we are on January 11th, and they are still unavailable. This is part of the problem across this country. Testing is just simply unavailable for those that need it. Okay, and what about the booster dose program down there? I mean, vaccines are available. Vaccines are available. Uh, they've hit a wall in trying to get people though that, that, you know, 30 ish million people who haven't had their first dose, the more people who haven't had their second dose, the booster dose is also run into a wall here. But there is some kind of resistance that is starting to build up because we are now starting to hear that there is the potential for a fourth shot or a second booster for more immunocompromised people. The CEO of Pfizer coming out and saying that it should be ready in a couple of months. They're not sure how it's going to be used, but it's creating resistance from some people saying, look, the vaccines are out there. You told us they would work. Now you're telling us we might potentially need a fourth. That is another issue that's dogging the Democrats. Okay, so it's all of these headlines still. And Reggie, they're still taking the time from the Centers for Disease Control to tell people don't come here to Canada. 
Well, and look, there have been concerns and questions as to whether this is the CDC or the U.S. projecting outwards by saying, look, other countries need to control their COVID crisis as they kind of, you know, dance around the fact that their own crisis is the worst anywhere in the world. But ultimately, it simply comes down to metrics. The Canada uh, has surpassed 500 uh, cases per 100,000 residents, and that triggers the level four warning. It's not just Canada. It's also Curacao. It's Ireland. It's the United Kingdom. It's Israel. It's Finland. There's 80 different countries that are on this list. It's worth remembering you need a vaccine to be able to get into Canada. So this is just that kind of reminder that, look, breakthrough cases are possible. And if you're in Canada and you get sick, you may not be able to get back into the United States. It's a level of precaution. But again, given that this is such a crisis around the world, it is a head scratcher in that they say, well, simply just don't go to Canada right now. Right. It sounds so, Reggie, from everything you're describing is that there's no governments are talking about COVID, but are people still worried about this or is life just going on for people? Well, I mean, look, life's been going on in this country for several years. Some states kind of act like COVID is not a thing anymore. And that's why you're seeing uh, kind of rampant spikes uh, of cases uh, from one state to another. It depends on the rules. It depends on the mandates. It really depends on the political leadership that a single state has. People are tired of talking about COVID, but they understand that this crisis is not going to go away until the country can get a better handle on it. And the country can't get a better handle on it until at least at the federal level, messaging starts to change. The CDC has been criticized for uh, confusing messaging when it comes to masks, when it comes to vaccines, simply when it comes to protocols, that is starting to weigh on people by losing their faith in public health sciences. That's problematic. So now you have a country saying, well, you know, do this, do this, do this, but also don't do this and don't do this. And people kind of throw their hands up and they say, we don't know where we are anymore in this crisis. I can feel that. I can definitely empathize with that. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini is our Global News Washington correspondent talking about the COVID situation in the U.S. So as of yesterday, Colorado, Oregon, Louisiana, Maryland, and Virginia had all put out and declared public health emergencies, or they authorized something called crisis standards of care. That means that hospitals and ambulances can restrict treatment when they cannot meet demand. That is where they are at. They've definitely got a huge number of cases there. They broke the record with more than 145,000 hospitalizations due to COVID-19, more than they have seen at any point during the pandemic. As for us here at home, yes, lots of concerns about that. A reminder, we will be getting that briefing today from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. That's at 1.30. You will hear it live on the Jill Bennett Show. I think the metric that we all look for now is the number of hospitalizations. We know that testing, it, it reached its max. So the number of tests, positive cases that they report is not accurate of how many people actually have COVID-19 out there. So now we look for the number of hospitalizations. That number has been going up, up, and up. So we wait for that update this afternoon and again live on the Jill Bennett Show. This is Mornings with Simi. There are lots of different ways that you can support businesses right now. I know restaurants in particular would love to hear more about that. Well, that's what Dine Out Vancouver is all about. It's going on again this year, and I'm sure that it has challenges, but let's find out more about it. Joining us now is Lucas Pavin, the Dine Out Festival Manager. Lucas, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Simi, for having us on your show this morning. Now, tell me about Dine Out. It's going on this year. That must have been a challenging decision to make in light of the environment. Uh, it certainly was, um, but we have done dine-out over the last two years, and uh, as far as restaurants go, restrictions have been harder than they are today. 
so we've had more challenges in the past two years than I think we've had this year. So we're quite happy to move forward with the festival again, which is such an important uh, thing for restaurants in our in our community and such uh, an event that's so well liked by so many Vancouverites. Yeah, it really is. So give us an idea of the history here, Lucas. How did Dino get started? What is the point? So it was uh, started in late 2002, and the first year was 2003 as a way of driving restaurant reservations to uh, restaurants during a slow time of the year. January is uh, traditionally very slow from a tourism perspective, and uh, Destination Vancouver created the event in order to to drive those reservations. Uh, and over the last 20 years, Dino's become Canada's largest food and drink festival, which celebrates the variety of flavors and depth of talent in our culinary community. And now during the pandemic, it's also a way of celebrating the resilience of an industry that's been really hard hit by restrictions over the last two years. And for people who don't know, how does it work? What is so special about it? So restaurants create uh, three or more course menus at uh, specific prices within ranges. So anywhere from 20 to $59. Um, Guests can choose by cuisine type or neighborhood uh, or by price uh, on the website. And um, you go, you make your reservation, you go to your restaurant, uh, you have your meal, you hopefully order you know, a glass of BCBQA wine or a bottle of BCBQA wine. Um, you can participate in various culinary experiences that we uh, curate uh, with restaurants and other uh, tour operators and such. Uh, and we also have a hotel program that allows you to have uh, a culinary staycation, uh, get out of the house, um, make a, a whole adventure out of it, and spend a, a night downtown. Yeah, that sounds like fun. So how many restaurants do you have this year? And, and was it, did like how busy was it in terms of signups? It was very busy. We have over 325 restaurants participating this year, which is a testament, again, to their resilience. Uh, last year, we had a few more, but certainly the industry's lost a few restaurants over the course of, of the last year. Um, we have a variety of culinary experiences that I've mentioned before. And with our hotel program, um, I'd like to highlight that uh, if you book a hotel uh, at a uh, book a room at a downtown Vancouver hotel over the dates of dine out, you can uh, earn a $50 MasterCard gift card for each night up to a maximum of three nights which you can turn around and spend on the hotel room, use it to pay for your dine-out dinner, uh, apply it to your culinary experience, or go shopping, uh, whatever you like. How busy has it been in terms of people booking up these restaurants? Because I know it's, that's always the case, right? Good ones get go pretty quickly. They sure do. And according to our, our web guy, it's uh, traffic to our website this year is up almost 100% over 2021, which is phenomenal. Um it's just a testament to how popular this event is and, and how much people are looking to get out and experience something uh, that is outside of the routine that we've all been experiencing over the last several months. Oh, that is so true. That's why I thought it would be good to talk about this too, I think, Lucas, just because people need something else to look forward to right now. And do you, What have you been hearing from people? That's certainly true. You know, normally we would be planning a vacation or something and, you know, it's recommended not to, to do that, to stay home and stay close to home. So it's really important for people to have something on the horizon to look forward to, to, you know, keep their mental health in check and, and 
stay connected with friends and family and that sort of thing. So um, this festival that starts up on Friday and runs until the end of the month is a, a really important way for not only the public, but also for restaurants and, and staff to keep spirits up. Yeah, it really is the kind of wide variety of restaurants here. There must be a temptation to expand this. Uh, well, we already go from White Rock to West Van, and 300 restaurants is, is quite a lot. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a challenge to put together, and so I think we're at a, at a really great place right now. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, we, we add different events and that sort of thing to broaden the scope of the festival and make sure that there's something for everybody. Uh, but you are right. There is a huge variety of, of restaurants that are represented uh, across the region uh, through our festival. I guess uh, booking sooner rather than later is probably a good idea. I'm on your website right now, and, you know, a, a lot of them are saying they're accepting reservations, but that could that could change pretty quickly, couldn't it? It certainly can. The website does take online reservations. Some restaurants will only accept walk-ins. Uh, every restaurant is different. I recommend uh, early seatings, midweek dining. Uh, certainly a Friday night at 7 or a Saturday night at 7 is going to book up a lot faster than a Wednesday at 5 or 8 p.m. Um, and again, lots of restaurants withhold seats so that they can accommodate walk-in guests. So I also recommend calling a restaurant up if uh, you can't find something online just to see if they have something available. Jump in there and do it fast. All right, Lucas, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Lucas Pavin, who's the Dine Out Vancouver Festival Manager. Now, this starts on Friday, as you heard him say, runs for a couple of weeks. Dine Out is hugely popular. And this year, as always during the pandemic, it's a great way to show your support for restaurants. They've got, what's, what did he say, 325 or so restaurants that are participating in this. And the way it works is that for a set price, and it's usually a very reasonable set price, you get a three-course meal at some of the best restaurants in town. For instance, I'm looking online and on their website, which is dineoutvancouver.com, and you just go through their list of restaurants and you pick one, let's say Hawksworth. You've always wanted to eat at Hawksworth. Well, for $59, that's the price for their menu, you get an appetizer, you get an entree, which by the way is braised beef brisket, and you get a dessert all included in that for that one set price. Now there's different ones. You can find cheaper ones, you can find more expensive ones, but essentially it's a very reasonable price for a complete meal at some of the best restaurants in town. No wonder it's so popular, but it does book up quickly. And right now I'm looking at their website and there's a lot of availability. They are accepting reservations, but remember this is over a period of several weeks You can do lunch, you can do dinner. It is just a great way right now to show your support for some local restaurants. So check it out. It is dineoutvancouver.com.